Producer Will Erskine here welcoming you to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Coming up on the show, the Nova Scotia election was at the start of a trend. The Taliban has begun a public relations campaign. Major General Denny Fortin has been charged. And are you ready to go to a concert? It all starts now. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ontario is putting further reopening plans on hold due to the Delta variant. Get the jab, and it's way better than getting a dipstick shoved up your nose every week. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, who wants that? All right, good afternoon. It is uh, 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. Uh, we would love to hear from you. There's lots of ways to do that. You can visit the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, last night, Nova Scotia's progressive conservatives uh, and their leader, Tim Houston, earned a majority win in their provincial election. Let's bring in Ross Lord, reporter with Global National Base in Halifax and is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time hope you're well oh yes i am thanks scott always good to have a chance so uh, how big of a surprise is this to everybody there i think it is a surprise because the liberals started the campaign with a big lead in every public opinion poll about halfway through it started to shift to the progressive conservatives but even by the end of the campaign it was still thought to be extremely close with a majority of uh, political analysts and pollsters saying it could still be a liberal, a possible majority, more likely a liberal minority, uh, or maybe a PC minority. I, I didn't hear too many people, if any, saying, yeah, it's going to be a PC majority. But as you know, uh, and I know, uh, after covering politics for a while, when the pendulum swings from one to another, sometimes it can swing with a lot of force. And so that's what appears to have happened here. Uh, it's, it swung all the way to the PCs, which made a somewhat shorter election night uh, broadcast for us than some recent minority outcomes, but still a, a long and, and interesting and fascinating evening. And now, of course, the question is how much of what they say they're going to do, including fixing health care, are they actually going to be able to follow through on? Uh, as you said, Ross, this was not uh, predicted. And now, in hindsight, which is always twenty twenty, can you look back and see when the tide started to shift for them? I think you can. Um, everyone has different reasons that they assign to uh, Ian Rankin's downfall. I talked to a political analyst this morning who said he was in trouble before this even started because... The previous Liberal Premier, Stephen McNeil, was essentially a one-person government and didn't really give his cabinet ministers like Ian Rankin a chance to shine or develop much of a profile. So he hands off the ball to Rankin. Rankin stumbles on a few issues. Uh, His judgment comes into question for the way he handled uh, the revelation of two impaired driving incidents uh, that emerged from when he was a young man. Also from the way that the party uh, evidently forced uh, candidate to resign for uh, you know reasons that that were considered uh, possibly a sexist double standard, especially in light of his own personal transgressions from years earlier. Um, 
you know, he, he ran a low energy campaign. He, he just didn't display a lot of passion for things. It's kind of ironic because some people say his concession speech last night was more passionate than any speech he, he ever made during the campaign or, or at all. So that was also a notion by some people that he was sort of riding McNeil's coattails or just trying to parlay Nova Scotia's success against COVID-19 into a majority. Um, so uh, some combination of all those things uh, probably were his, his undoing, not to mention that the PCs and NDP hammered his government on what they say is mismanagement of other health care issues like ambulance service, uh, waiting lists for doctors. So, you know, you could say that's the low-hanging fruit in politics because that's a problem in every province. Um, and, and, and not not all of the reasons have to do with the government that's managing it, because uh, we've had three different parties manage the province here over the last 15 years, and healthcare uh, didn't get demonstrably better under any of them. And uh, so, yeah, the big question now is what happens to healthcare and what happens to the province in general under a PC government. Did you sense the need, or the, there was the feeling of a, of a need for change in the province prior to the election, or did, did you get the feeling people were happy with the status quo? I, I don't know, and I, and I honestly probably didn't have as much of a feel for that as I, as I would normally, because we're still, you know, we're, we're getting out and around more this summer mm-hmm. because the restrictions have eased. But, you know, on a lot of days, a lot of us are still sort of in our, our bubble, you know, working from home a lot. Um, you've, you've got a, a small circle of friends and family that you, you sort of communicate or hang out with. Uh, you know, you, you keep on top of social media and the emails and texts and phone calls. And um, But, you know, I think at the start of the campaign, my feeling, and I think a lot of people felt that it was his, you know, he, he did have control and, and the polls, I think, accurately reflected that. So, uh, part of this is that he was handed the ball and fumbled it before he got into the end zone. And uh, there's also a lesson here for the federal liberals that you can't necessarily rely on that COVID bump that so many incumbent governments got mm. in the past while where their seat count went up after they went to the polls. So that streak is over. Um, so that might be something that the federal liberals keep in mind. Uh, that some of the things you might have taken for granted in your own campaign might not be true. Wow. What an uh, interesting turn of events. Ross Lord with his reporter with Global National based in Halifax last night. Nova Scotia chose a progressive conservative uh, leader, that being Tim Houston, uh, him, uh, sorry, Tim Houston, who is the next premier of the province. Ross, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. You too, Scott. Take care. Here's the commentary you've been waiting for. I find it amusing, when not frustrating, when political parties say basically the same thing and try to sell it as something different or unique from their opponents. Unlike the United States, every single political party in Canada is very much encouraging everybody to get fully vaccinated. However, some have chose the word mandatory and others have not. The Prime Minister started this by saying for all federal employees and their agencies, full vaccinations are mandatory. However, when he was asked what happens to those who refuse, no solution was given, especially around the legalities of such a move, and only frequent testing of those was offered up as a remedy. 
Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says he won't make it mandatory for the above reasons, citing education as the best remedy, and I would agree, since the vast majority of Canadians have already done just that, with over 82% of eligible Ontarians with the first shot. Perhaps the most honest answer came from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, when he said Ontario will mandate full vaccination for healthcare and education workers unless they have a medical exemption documentation, have undergone an educational session on the advantages of vaccine, and or subject themselves to frequent COVID-19 testing. In a free country, education always wins over forced compliance. That is why the overwhelming vast majority of Canadians are already following the science and getting vaccinated. I'm Scott Thompson. We are different parties, but we have shared values in many areas and shared volunteers. And so it was a great night for Nova Scotia and an example that often people will look for change and demand better. And I'm offering that in Ottawa. That, of course, is uh, federal conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole speaking on the conservative, the uh, PC's win in Nova Scotia uh, last night. Uh, very much an upset. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor with the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are too. Uh, normally, we're not really uh, quick to talk about elections in other provinces. Why is this one significant? Nova Scotia is significant for a number of reasons. And obviously, we have to be sorry. We have to be a little careful in terms of how we judge it, simply because this is a provincial election, and what happens in a provincial election doesn't necessarily get translated into a federal election. But based on the fact that all the polls show that the Liberals were going to to win from the very start, they had anywhere from a ten to twelve point lead. And by the final couple of days, the last couple of polls, they were still ahead by two to three points in the remaining two polls. If you look at what happened yesterday, not only was there a majority PC government, which nobody saw, there was a differential of nearly 13 points in the sense that the Tories, or the, let's just call them properly, the PCs, won by a margin of 10 plus points or more opinion-wise, which when you add it to the differential of the two previous polls, it's astonishing how much the polling companies were off. And for that reason, it means that for the federal election, um, Atlantic Canada could be in play, Nova Scotia could be in play, and that the minority government of Justin Trudeau, who obviously counts on certain votes in certain regions, especially in Atlantic Canada and in Nova Scotia itself, although Nova Scotia has a history federally of voting for the old progressive conservative party federally and the NDP as well. It means that, while it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to, that being Justin Trudeau, is going to lose the next federal election, it means that his minority could shrink dramatically or that people are just not pleased with the status quo any longer. So, it's kind of an astonishing result. 
Uh, what does it say about the polling? Because we've seen this in the last couple of elections where we thought it was going to swing one way and it went the other. That's right. What, what, does this, is this people polling differently than they actually vote? Uh, is it something that changes in the last 48 hours before an election? How do you explain this? No, this is not explained in the last 48 hours. The latter point doesn't explain it because it means that the polling companies were all completely off. Now, you can look at that a few different ways. I've written about it and others have too. We know that people, when they respond to polling companies, are not necessarily as honest as they used to be in terms of who they support, what they support, issues they favor, or who they plan to vote for. So obviously, you have to look at the margin of error, which is two to three points typically, maybe add a point or two on and say that things can obviously switch in that little circle. But the problem is, the only way some people can judge things, and the only way that, quite frankly, a lot of people in the media can judge things, is based on what they see with the opinion polling. So the polling companies obviously come back and continually suggest, especially in the case like Nova Scotia, where you're way off, that, well, this is the data. This is what we had. This is what we produced. This is the only thing we can go by. And if you follow the trend over the past few years, it seems to be consistent. The possibility that there was a 10 to 12 to upwards of 13-point shift overall in the span of 48 hours is absolutely impossible. It can't happen. So it means that, as I said before, that the status quo in politics, at least provincially in Nova Scotia, clearly doesn't hold any longer. And if that's the case, the status quo in the federal scene, that being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, who have been in power since 2015, may not lose next month, but could be in serious jeopardy of dropping even more seats than they probably originally expected when they called this unnecessary pandemic election. And you have to wonder how Canadians feel if we go through all this and end up in the exact same place. Um, talk a little bit about talk a little bit about uh, how our perhaps our tone is changing coming out of this global pandemic. We remember uh, the prime minister uh, as early as just after the first wave. There was a small window there. There was a throne speech, uh, right. hoping hoping that the opposition would somehow trigger an election. That of course uh, didn't happen. Then there was a couple of provincial elections after that where uh, they've managed to to work it in between a window and yeah. they were victorious uh now we're at this stage of the of the camp of the uh pandemic rather say 74 75 weeks in has mm. that tone changed uh in, in other words we're not looking so much about what we're in but we're looking towards what's next it may be um i mean obviously a lot of people are still parsing through the numbers and we're trying to figure out if there is a trend in nova scotia or if it's just simply an anomaly but if you look at the pandemic as a whole, you're right that we've had a couple of provincial pa- uh, elections during the pandemic, including in B.C., where, for example, NDP Premier John Horgan called an early election and actually increased himself into a majority, which is the situation that he wanted to be in. That's what Ian Rankin was also trying to do in Nova Scotia, and they completely backfired. But I think you're right that if you look at the fact that We've been in this pandemic since last March, or at least that's when the WHO declared it around March 13th of 2020. And the fact that people are now recognizing that the Delta variants and the Delta Plus variant and various other things are going on at the same time, that some countries are experiencing, quote unquote, a fourth wave. We may be as well in in smaller contingents, and we don't know exactly where things are going to go once we head into the fall and the winter, the weather gets colder and things could obviously change with the virus, 
I think what we're looking at, though, is a society that wants to get back to normal, or at least whatever the new normal is. They want to get back into their old routines. They want to see their family, their friends, their loved ones, etc. They want to have a normal life where they can just sort of go out day to day and not worry about things. You know, we recognize that obviously we're going to continue to wear our masks, wash our hands, social distancing, etc. A lot of that's going to be with us for quite some time. But we want to at least get back to some sense of normalcy. And with that, I think that some of the attitudes that we've had during the global pandemic, especially where a lot of Canadians were relying more on government than ever before, with, you know, emergency relief measures like CERB, the CEWS, etc., those taps are about to be shut off pretty soon, which means that individuals and businesses are going to have to get back into the free market economy, back into the system that we knew, loved, respected, etc., and they're going to have to not only exist there and thrive there, they're going to have to also survive in certain cases. For that reason, I think that certainly the way governments are approaching certain issues, especially Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who, you know, his best moves or his best visage, so to speak, is when he doesn't deal with difficult issues and just hands out money and does other fluffy things. That's really what he does best. That's not even a partisan statement. That's just the way he is as a leader. I think we know this now after six years, or most of us do anyway. Now it's coming down to a point where things are starting to change. And if people are returning to normal and they're starting to look at things that they used to love and appreciate and they want to go back to them, then a lot of the attitudes that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has had, certainly, since the global pandemic started, will not sell the same way. Nova Scotia could be an early example, albeit provincially, that people are starting to want to go back to certain things and they want their governments to be fiscally responsible again, to manage our money properly, to manage government properly, and not just give wild handouts where we know that the deficit and debt monsters need to be tamed and pretty badly and it'll take years to get it under control. And the fact that the money that we have, our actual dollar, is obviously not worth as much as it used to be, but then again, no international currency is either. So this may be a sign that people are starting to think along the lines they did in the pre-COVID-19 days, and if that's the case, then a lot of governments who call early elections, or even governments who call elections, could be punished by certain amounts of voters, and that's where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau could be in big trouble. Uh, obviously, Aaron O'Toole pleased with this. How, what, how do you think the the Liberals are? How do you think this is resonating with with the Liberal campaign? And and how are they viewing this? What are they going to learn from this? Now, obviously, you're referring to the federal Liberals, correct? Yes, correct. Um, yes. Yeah, the federal Liberals. Well, look, they're obviously they're going to put on a brave face publicly. You could have, for example, instead of me, you could have a Liberal talking head on right now. And while they would certainly, he, she, they would acknowledge that, yeah, it's not a great result, you know, we're still moving forward. We have a good plan. We've been in power for two governments, et cetera, et cetera. Behind the scenes, I think it's fair to say that the federal liberals are not necessarily panicking, but that there are a number of red flags that are up, noting that, yes, Nova Scotia is obviously one province. It's a small province, and it may not be a telltale sign of what's going to happen next month when we vote on September the 20th. But I think they also have to realize, as I said earlier, that if certain provinces and regions are in play for this federal election, potentially, that no one expected, and I don't think a lot of people thought Nova Scotia was going to be the starting point this way, Mm. with no disrespect to them, just the polls didn't show that, 
it means that the federal liberals are going to have to either clamp down on some of the rhetoric they've been using the past year or so, cut back on some of the language they've been using, the sort of the, the fluffy, we're all in this together type language, and maybe go back to a back-to-basic strategy where they start looking at, you know, some of the money and various programs that they created recently, you know, largely in provinces like Quebec, but also nationally as well, and start emphasizing things like, say, national child care or something of that nature to get back to dollar amounts, financial amounts, and try to sell younger couples, millennials, and others that they have the right agenda going forward. You know, for obviously for conservative parties like Aaron O'Toole, <clears throat> excuse me, and the, uh, the federal Tories, this is actually a window that they were hoping for, and they've now got, where they can not only counter the Liberals with their COVID-19 talk, but they've already introduced a plan where they're talking about housing structures, where they're talking about lower taxes, a more responsible government, fiscal responsibility in general. And a lot of that is going to start to play much better with the electorate than probably it would have a few days ago. And if Aaron O'Toole can continue on that line and have a focused and strong message and not worry about putting out ads that deal with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yeah. and nonsense like that, all the silliness we don't want, if Aaron O'Toole runs a serious campaign is actually able to resonate with a lot of people, including disgruntled liberals who might have gone for Justin Trudeau in the end of it, but are now saying that, well, if Nova Scotia is an example that things might be changing, maybe I have to change and look elsewhere, too. This is a big, big move for them. And in fairness, very briefly, it's also very good for the other left-leaning parties, the NDP, the Greens, the Bloc, and right. the because now they can poach some of that left-wing support that they thought they couldn't capture from the Liberals. It may now be in play, too. Again, I'm not saying that Justin Trudeau is going to lose next month. We don't know as of yet. But right now, in the first few days of the campaign, this has not gone the way the federal liberals had hoped. Privately, they're probably wondering what they have to do next and trying to plan strategies quickly to what, for what they have to do next. But for the opposition parties, the Tories and all the other left-leaning opposition parties, they have an advantage now, at least at the present time, that they can use to knock the polls even closer, improve the possibility that the seat count or seat impact will tighten, and who knows what will happen in a few weeks' time. A lot can still occur. All right, let's move to the federal campaign uh, that is in, I guess, day four now. It seems there's a lot of chatter over mandatory vaccination and who's making who get vaccinated and who's doing what there. Um, but it, it appears as if everyone's plan is exactly the same, and that is got to get a vaccine. And if you don't get a vaccine, you've got to provide some sort of a documentation as why you can't. You have to go through an education session and, of course, the vigorous testing. Um, why is this becoming an issue if pretty much every party's at the same point on this? Uh, is, this well, a distra- is this a distraction for the prime minister? It's a distraction that he created. I mean, yeah. let's be fair about it. So, you know, you can't say that, well, everyone's talking about it. why should I? It's because you initiated the conversation, that being Justin Trudeau. So, sorry, you're, you've entered it. Now you have to discuss it. Um, the one thing I would say, the one caveat is, although the major parties are certainly aligned in their support of people to get vaccinated, I agree with you there. Um, the one big difference is, when it comes to mandatory vaccines, you know, for example, the unions, including PSAC, actually are aligning with a strategy which is closer to what Aaron O'Toole and the Tories are saying right now, 
where they came out and basically said, yeah, we believe in vaccination and all that, but making it mandatory or forcing people to do it, they feel is, you know, is, is not fair, it's not democratic, unconstitutional, whatever you want to say. You're finding that actually Justin Trudeau, who thought it would be probably a very safe thing to talk about this, that public service workers and others should get vaccinated and it should be mandatory, he's getting a lot of blowback, not just from right-leaning individuals like myself or right-leaning parties like the Tories, but also from left-leaning unions and others who are saying that, look, even in theory, if we agree with it, we don't like how the practice is being brought out or we don't like how the plan is evolving right now. So I think that's going to be the big difference is whether Canadians, who are going to obviously not pay as much attention now as they will say after Labor Day with this election, it's really up to the opposition parties to carry these controversies for as long as they possibly can and continue to point out that for all that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claims that he, you know, we're all in this together, he stands for Canadians, et cetera, et cetera, if major blocks are actually opposing him and they're like-minded blocks, that means that his message is offside and that his party is offside and that government policy is offside. That's an advantage that any opposition party can actually use. So I think that's why the mandatory, you know, mandatory vaccinations or mandatory vaccine passports and other issues have become more prevalent than I think a lot of us expected. And ironically, Aaron O'Toole's position, which actually differs from Ontario Premier Doug Ford's as of right now, as you probably talked about in your show, Mr. the rumor that Mr. Ford was going to ensure that all MPPs, cabinet, you know, cabinet members and candidates would be you know, vaccinated, apparently, mm-hmm. according to Robert Benzi of the Toronto Star, by Thursday at 5 p.m. or else, it appears to be valid. That's different than what Aaron O'Toole is suggesting, but it allows Aaron O'Toole to state that, well, look, I'm trying to take a middle ground. I'm trying to say that, yeah, yeah. we favor vaccines, but at the same time, we don't like hurting people's liberty, their freedoms, you know, the, the, the rule of democracy. And that's an interesting strategy to take that a few days ago, Scott, I think people would have said was a little bit risky and were saying it. They're not as much now. Good point. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, we have seen what has unraveled uh, in Afghanistan over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and of course, uh, as U.S. forces leave, uh, the Taliban uh, taking over and, and many surprised at the speed in which this has happened. And, of course, uh, fast forward to those horrific images uh, we all saw at the Kabul airport with uh, Afghan trying desperately to get out of the country thinking there was a seat on a plane for them and uh we all know where that ended up and and now uh at least uh the airport has been secured and uh they are trying to get those out that are are desperately trying to get out and it shows you the desperation uh that we are dealing with uh in all of this uh surprising yesterday to anybody who's been following the story for any length of time including the last 20 years uh with, with a news conference that uh, uh, all of a sudden a charm offensive is being used by the Taliban. Is this the new Taliban? What can we expect? Or is this just all another smoke screen? Uh, smoke screen. Let's bring in Oral Braun, Professor International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
Uh, I am. Thank you. Are, were you surprised at the charm offensive news conference we saw yesterday? Uh, you know, it, it seems odd that the weapons were put down and uh, they spruced themselves up for the camera. No, because they have become the Taliban more media savvy. They understand that the situation is different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, in Afghanistan, people had no phones. 20 years ago, 75% of the people now have cell phones. And, of course, they also appreciate the Taliban that the international image that they project uh, may be of significance. So uh, this was not unexpected. The question is whether this is credible. And that is ultimately what will determine the fate of the Afghan people and also that of regional security and perhaps even international security. What is the reason for such a news conference? Are, are, are they trying to portray to the world that they are uh, some form of responsible government and should be addressed as such? Afghanistan has been very heavily dependent in key ways on foreign aid. Much of the money that's coming in for various programs uh, is derived from foreign aid, and uh, the Taliban would like to maintain that uh, flow of money into Afghanistan because that would make their rule easier. It is also the case that whatever assets there are that um, the uh, government had, it's held in American dollars and gold, and that is held by the United States. So if they could pry uh, some of that loose, that would benefit them as uh, as well. So there are all sorts of reasons why they would want to do this. The big issue, again, is whether any of this is genuine. And the early indications are not encouraging. So obviously uh, the Taliban of today compared to that of 20 years ago is a lot more media savvy. Obviously Afghanistan has changed in the last 20 years or so. Um, uh, as you alluded to, are people buying into this uh, or, or is this just all a front? You had mentioned that there were these tragic, indelible uh, images of people desperately trying to get out of uh, Afghanistan, uh, people clinging to this giant aircraft, the C-17 that the U.S. was flying out, and some of them uh, horribly falling to their death. And that image uh, is our lasting one. But I think uh, uh, what is just what equally significant is what we don't see. And what observers, and there are fewer and fewer left foreign observers, in Afghanistan, what they're telling us is that we do not see women on the street, yeah. that they have largely disappeared off the streets of Kabul. And that is a really bad sign, because in a sense, this is a kind of litmus test of this regime, how it will treat women, how it will treat girls who want to get an education. And even though there were some reassuring words that, yes, uh, women could continue to work, but they would have to uh, do so, the stipulation is, according to Sharia law, but Sharia law as interpreted by the extremely fanatical, rigid uh, Taliban who have distorted Islamic law uh, throughout uh, their previous rule. So you can see that the women of Afghanistan are not buying this. They are scared. They are staying at home. There are, is hardly any 
woman to be seen on the streets of uh, Kabul and other cities, and those who dare to venture out take the precaution that they wear burqas, which were not very fashionable in Afghanistan until uh, the Taliban uh, took over. You have reports of men going to stores and buying burqas for their wives, their daughters, as a way of trying to protect them. We see also that even though the airport has been secured, people, in order to try to leave Afghanistan, have to go through Taliban checkpoints. And those checkpoints have also become choke points. Uh, you, you were talking about, obviously, um, uh, women and the gains that they have made in the last 20 years and, and, and are in fear of losing. We have, as you mentioned, heard the Taliban uh, focus on that, reach out, say there was opportunity for them. Yet, as you also pointed out, there is none to be seen on the streets. What about the consistency of these rules? What about the consistency of the Taliban and their leadership? Or are they more organized, or is this more kind of a free-for-all, depending upon who you're talking to within that organization? Because really, is there a Taliban organization? How, how consistent is it? There is an organization. How cohesive it is, we do not know, because there is a good deal of opaqueness. We know that some of the key leaders have returned, such as uh, Mullah Baradar, and he was one of the co-founders of the Taliban, and I think that is not a positive development. Um, and uh, uh, others uh, are also hardliners. One of them is uh, the son of uh, one of the late founders of the Taliban movement. So the kind of core leadership that is being formed is an extremely hardline one. Whether they will have uh, an absolute inefficient control over the country, that remains to be seen. The, uh, Afghanistan is a tribal society. It is made up of uh, several groups. Uh, there are important uh, minorities that have been badly treated, whether it is the Tajiks or especially the Hazaras. Uh, and so we will have to see uh, how uh, they will fair under the new regime. They certainly did not do well under the previous Taliban regime. But some of these kind of regimes also find it um, beneficial uh, on occasion to have a kind of plausible deniability. Uh, look at Hezbollah, for example, in Lebanon, which essentially rules the country. But they will have plausible deniability because they will say, well, we don't control everything. And uh, that if there's some kind of flare-up or if some particularly uh, horrific atrocity is uh, committed, that uh, hits uh, the headlines of newspapers and media around the world, they could say, well, this was a renegade group. But you know, in Lebanon, it is said that uh, you can't sneeze without Hezbollah knowing. And the sense I have is that the, the Taliban pretty well will control just about everything in Afghanistan. So if they claim that uh, some uh, repressive act was not ordered from the center, we ought to be at least skeptical.
You were talking about the airport, and, and we certainly remember those images. We understand things have calmed down there, uh, that, that, that U.S. troops or allies have, have uh, regained control of, of the airfields and such. But as you mentioned, uh, it's the Taliban that's controlling who goes in and out, sort of creating a chokehold. Who are they going to let in to the airport who, th- who you know, theoretically will want out? Uh, because is that not going to allow them to, you know, net anybody that they want before they get out of the country? Exactly the problem, that if they are manning the checkpoints, that means they can examine and reject anyone They do not want to leave anyone they suspect they could arrest. And we know that they do not tolerate dissent. We know that in the eastern provinces, they have already killed some people in putting down demonstrations. They use brutal force. They use uh, uh, live ammunition in some instances. They have no hesitation uh, to resort to force. Uh, This charm offensive is very thin and very, very uh, limited. So there is an incredible amount of desperation in Afghanistan. People are getting emails um, from uh, uh, Afghanistan, friends, relatives uh, um, outside of Afghanistan, uh, where it is very clear that, uh, yes, the airport is secure, but this is uh, way, way too late. I mean, the Biden administration's exit strategy has been absolutely horrific. It has been a a massive, massive failure. So even if some uh, would agree that uh, Western forces led by the United States should leave, should have left Afghanistan, the execution was so badly done that you see widespread criticism, not only from the Republicans, but widely within the Democratic Party and from allies, uh, allies who have been very reluctant to criticize the United States, such as Angela Merkel. So that being said, Oral, who is getting out? Who is the Taliban letting get through that checkpoint to leave the country? And why do they want them leaving? Sometimes they can't stop. uh, The numbers are large. And they uh, want to, as part of the charm offensive, show that they are uh, cooperating to some extent. They want to make sure that the Americans all leave, that they don't remain stationed at the airport and so on. They do not want to have some American military intervention where they would have uh, American fighters, uh, uh, fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft uh, be used uh, against them. So uh, they are allowing some people out, but it's in limited numbers. A couple of uh, uh, countries have complained that they have not been able to get their people out. The Danes had a plane go out virtually empty. They couldn't uh, get uh, their people on on, on board. Hmm. Um, but I have a feeling that there, if there are individuals whom they want to hold, um, people of uh, importance to the Taliban, they are not likely to, to get through. They will have to find some other means of getting out, perhaps uh, through porous borders with uh, Iran or Tajikistan or, or elsewhere, but uh, the airport uh, may not be uh, the right place for them to attempt to, to get out. And I think people know this in, in Afghanistan. And also, we have to just consider that the airlift capacity is very limited. 
And if we look at what happened in Syria, and never mind Syria, but if we look at what happened in Afghanistan in the first Taliban uh, regime uh, days, millions, millions of Afghans fled, and they went into Iran and elsewhere. Uh, they were repatriated largely, but are these people likely to flee again? So if you mm -hmm. are going to have not thousands or even tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands or millions of Afghans fleeing, and that is certainly within the realm of possibility, that is not going to be done through the airport in Kabul. So in your, in your opinion, Arl, is this a done deal? Taliban rule is the way it is for the immediate future. Is there any resistance within Afghanistan at all? We've seen reports of, of groups that have gathered and tried to take down uh, Taliban flags and, and reinstall Afghan, uh, an Afghan flag, and those have been quickly tore down. Is there any resistance to the Taliban within Afghanistan now? Has that disappeared? At the moment, it seems to have disappeared. It is uh, part of our culture in many poor, oppressed countries that you want to go with the winner. It is reluctant to challenge the winning side. The Taliban seem to be winning completely. Uh, the Afghan army did not collapse because it did not have weapons uh, or did not have training. It was because its morale collapsed when uh, the United States basically abandoned them. Uh, and they were sustained with a very small number of American troops. So there was not so much a substantive contribution as much as symbolic and one that reinforced morale. So the collapse of morale uh, would suggest that resistance, at least for the time being, is going to be, if not non-existent, very, very limited and ineffective. What will happen in the longer term, that that we don't know, because as the Taliban are likely, and no one can predict with certainty, uh, but uh, the Afghan people uh, clearly are under the belief that the Taliban are dangerous and will be repressive because of uh, how, as I noted, women have largely disappeared from the streets. Uh, whether resistance will build up in the future, that that we, we don't know in what form it will take again it would be difficult uh, difficult to say um, there are countries now that of course will support the Taliban I mean the Taliban uh, have benefited from vast support they could not have survived without Pakistan so they have that support they may get some support from China as well uh, there is uh, vast mineral wealth especially the northern part of Afghanistan uh, lithium for example some uh, exploration of minerals have suggested that uh, lithium, which is uh, so essential for semiconductors and chips, uh, that Afghanistan may turn out to have a larger uh, deposit of lithium than even Bolivia, the number one uh, producer. There are also rare earth minerals. China has no concern about human rights violations since they commit them uh, in a systematic way themselves, and so they may be willing to pump money in. They have this uh, Belt and Road I Initiative, and so that could bring in revenue to the uh, Taliban. Uh, the Taliban also benefit from revenue from border crossing with Pakistan, with, with Iran, and so if democracies really want to put economic pressure 
on the Taliban to uh, try to contain uh, this uh, repressive regime or maybe even possibly mm-hmm. ameliorate the brutality of this regime in the future, if those economic tools are to be effective, then we have to put pressure on, on Pakistan and we have to pressure uh, China. Uh, we have to make sure that the Taliban do not find alternate sources of funding rather than just rely on sanctions from the West. Arl Brown with us, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, talking about uh, Afghanistan and its future short term. Arl, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Interesting uh, uh, developments in the case of Major General Danny Fortan. Remember, he was the go-to guy for uh, vaccine distribution uh, during the height of uh, COVID-19. And, of course, once the uh, mass vaccination started to arrive, uh, the Major General very much a part of the news conferences and everything we saw every day uh, in regard to uh, the global pandemic and the distribution of vaccination. Then, all of a sudden, an allegation came forward about a situation back in the 80s when uh, the Major General was in military school. And uh, I understand a situation where allegedly he had exposed himself. And as a result, that has ended up with a count, a charge, one count of sexual assault. And an arrest warrant was issued uh, for the major general. Uh, You saw him uh, on a news conference just shortly after uh, saying how this had blindsided him. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University and Queen's University, and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute uh, and is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. I am indeed, and this is a uh, an interesting story. But we've we've tra- chatted repeatedly in the uh, in the past, and I think it's interesting to watch how this is evolving because it's becoming clear that this is not one broad brushstroke, but rather there are many nuances to the issues of uh, misconduct in the uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces, and we're seeing some of these play out even just in the last couple of weeks. So expand on that a little bit. Are you surprised at this charge? It, it's a pre- it, it appears that the major general was. So uh, am I, I think there was always a sense that if the authorities turned this over to, if, if, they can, if the uh, National Investigation Service which is the investigative authority uh, for these types of friends within the Canadian Armed Forces, turned it over to provincial authorities because uh, um, at the time at which the offense was committed, um, there was no authority to pursue uh, these uh, types of charges within the framework of the Canadian Armed Forces per se, um, that there was uh, reasonable grounds for them to turn over uh, the file for consideration by the Quebec Public Prosecutor's Office. Um, and that suggests there would have been enough evidence, certainly, for them to take a good look at it. And they've clearly taken a look at it, and they feel that um, a charge of uh, that that this charge is um, that that I mean, there, there's two elements to laying a charge. One is 
uh, is there a reasonable prospect of obtaining a conviction? And the other is whether there is a public interest component. And so we don't know how the pros public pro prosecutor's office uh, had weighed these two components, but uh, you could see how uh, in this sort of case, there might also be a public interest component uh, that might weigh into the public prosecutor's decision to pursue a charge in this case, um, in part, I think, because it then will establish definitively within the court of law um, whether there was wrongdoing by the general uh, or not in those circumstances. And so it is also an opportunity for the general to exonerate himself. And of course, if he's exonerated from those charges, it would also strengthen his case in federal court um, about uh, his uh, undue um, removal from post uh, that he previously held. Uh, and all that would have played into, I think, the considerations. Now, of course, it ups the ante for the general because he's now facing a, uh, a, a, fairly, uh, a fairly serious charge, but it also affords him the opportunity uh, to clear himself. Um, and uh, the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt is a reasonably high standard to clear. Uh, so there is ample opportunity for him to defend himself. We had initially heard, uh, allegedly, this was about him exposing himself uh, while in college. Are we now to assume that there is more to this than we originally thought? No, I think it's based on that. My guess is that it's based on that particular incident and on the evidence that is available, both from the victim and perhaps other individuals who would have been present at the time. Um, and given that it was considered by the Quebec Public Prosecutor's Office, I mean, there are lots of cases and charges that are laid related to uh, sexual misconduct and sexual offenses. So they would have simply looked at similar types of cases um, and looked at sort of what the... Uh, um, uh, whether there's merit in laying a charge and and whether there's a prospect of 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 obtaining uh, of obtaining a conviction um and so uh but i think what's what the court will take into consideration um is that this predates him being commissioned as an officer and there appears to be no allegation of misconduct uh, against major general fortin um, during his career in the Canadian Armed Forces, that he has served as a uniformed officer since being commissioned um, with distinction. That does not in any way detract from the fact that um, there uh, appears to be a victim here, and whether there is a victim and 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 whether there is a general wrongdoing, uh, the courts will have to establish. Uh, but there's certainly, I think, the the, the mitigating element that this is not uh, something that occurred while he was serving in uniform, whereas, of course, um, um, other investigations that we've seen from, with General Vance, these, of course, uh, cases. This, uh, this is an issue uh, that relates to his service in uniform and in senior command. Um, and similarly, the allegations that had been leveled against uh, Admiral Art McDonald uh, also related to him serving in a senior command position uh, at the time. So I think it's important to understand that uh, there are 
there are um, to the public, this all looks sort of like like one and the same, but that each of these cases uh, are very distinct cases. And they, we always need to remember that in the Canadian legal system, um, that the presumption of innocence prevails until such time as somebody is, in fact, proven guilty uh, before a court of law. And so I think it also reminds us uh, that we need to be careful in a rush to judgment uh, and uh, afford both uh, the, um, the, the alleged victim in this assault, as well as the perpetrator, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, as you've mentioned, Christian, uh, there have been other issues in regard to other key military leaders of late. We all know there's already a study that has been done back in, in 2015 and another one's in the process of, of, uh, of study now. Um, is this a distraction for the prime minister or is this just erring on the side of caution and, and letting due process proceed? So. Look, I think I was very surprised that the Quebec prosecutor's office would lay a charge now. Uh, I mean, we saw um, uh, Admiral MacDonald um, being cleared just prior to the call of the election. I think this was a strategic decision because you can't make that call during an election because it could possibly influence um, some of the debates uh, around uh, around the election. And so uh, I must admit that I'm surprised that the charge is being laid uh, during the federal writ period. Now, provincially, they will say that's not interesting to them because it's a federal election. It doesn't affect sort of the provincial mandate of the Quebec prosecutor's office. But it certainly does not come as an op- as an, at an opportune time for the prime minister because I think the prime minister has worked uh, quite diligently to try to avoid uh, these related issues becoming an election issue. And so now it's coming up during the campaign. Um, and of course, Major General Fortin having been uh, very outspoken and articulate in his perspective on this particular case uh, means that for better or for worse, uh, this is now part of the election campaign um, and uh, certainly something that uh, the prime minister uh, with his uh, with his feminist uh, policy that he's pursued uh, would have, I think, rather kept out of the uh, the public election discussion. And so I think he will likely double down on the fact uh, that uh, he uh, once again called for a an outside inquiry um, and outside stakeholder consultation on this particular matter to get the best advice for the government moving forward. This can, on the one hand, of course, be interpreted as him buying himself time uh, beyond the election in terms of making some of the tough decisions. Uh, On the other hand, it can be interpreted as uh, the first time around, um, the Canadian Forces Department of National Defense, the minister and the government uh, did not perhaps probe the policy that was being put in place sufficiently and consult sufficiently with stakeholders. And so certainly the governing party is vulnerable on that file. And so to hedge against that vulnerability, here's his opportunity, I think, to say, we're going to get it right the second time around. We realize we should have probably done more due diligence and more consultation uh, the first time around. Um, and that the policy did falter under our watch. Um, But uh, there's also a broader obligation to the Canadian Armed Forces because I don't think we have an opportunity uh, to go around this bush again. Whatever the policy now looks like, the government has to get it right because the reputational cost to the Canadian Armed Forces um, is and and the performative legitimacy of the Canadian Armed Forces is so severe um, uh, that the government, I think, uh, uh, owes it to the Canadian Armed Forces um, and owes it to its own uh, um, 
governance um, uh, legitimacy uh, to demonstrate that it will get this policy right and in a sustainable and resilient fashion. But Christian, is or does this become an election issue now, or does uh, the major general become a scapegoat? And like the other review, this just gets pushed off down the road. Uh, yeah. So I think the, I mean, uh, look the the um, it, the the major general is going to have it appears his uh, his day in court and in, uh, uh, initially um, on or about September twentieth. Uh, so uh, th- this uh, this is now going to remain, I think, a hot issue that will um, continue to resurface throughout the campaign. Um, the Minister of National Defense has already weighed in on the file. The Prime Minister has weighed in on the file. Um, and so it suggests that they feel uh, that uh, they are they they need to rationalize and justify the position that they have taken um, on the matter of uh, professional uh, conduct and institutional culture um, and requisite change within the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, and uh, they, at the same time, will need to make sure that they steer clear of any remarks with regards to Major General Fortin, because uh, certainly um, uh, any remark that the political authority might make in this particular case um, uh, would uh, likely um, uh, undermine the Crown's case uh, against Major General uh, Fortin. So he himself, I think, uh, will be looking very carefully at what sort of statements um, are coming out of a political authority because uh, he is, of course, not just defending himself um, against the criminal charge. He is also defending, uh, he's also taking the government to court federally, that is to say, the in effect, the, the, the current government that is running for a new mandate um, on both the process and the substance by which he was uh, removed from his post. Uh, because he instituted that uh, and, and went looking for a wrongful dismissal. Did that speed up this uh, process? Did that add to this process? Or do we assume that's just two totally different, uh, two totally different processes? So uh, they're, of, they're, they're completely different court processes, given that one is a federal and one is a provincial uh, process. Uh, but I would have to think that the uh, public prosecutor's office in Quebec um, would have uh, taken into account uh, that part of uh, Major General Fortin's uh, case against the federal government uh, will rest on the extent to which um, he is exonerated or not on the particular charge that he faces. Um, and so for better or for worse, uh, that giving him his day in court uh, will either strengthen or weaken uh, his federal right. case uh, by virtue of a um, um, uh, of a guilty or a not guilty verdict uh, in that case. So what's next for the major general now? What recourse does he have? What options does he have? What about costs? Uh, yeah, so he will, uh, I mean, he's made it clear that he's currently bearing those costs. Um, and uh, I mean, how far those costs go will depend, for instance, the Quebec judge may simply dismiss the charge that's been laid once it actually comes before the judge. I mean, that's entirely possible. Um, uh, or or they can, or they may, may actually be a trial. Um, but certainly, I think the if there is a finding of 
not guilty against the general in provincial court. And if he wins his case in federal court, uh, I would have to assume that uh, Major General Fortin will be uh, going back to uh, the government and be, be looking for full reimbursement um, of his costs. Um, he also now faces an additional jeopardy, which is that if he ends up being convicted of a criminal offense, it, he risks losing his pension. And so there are considerably high stakes at, uh, at stake for him here, much higher than for General Vance, because the obstruction justice of justice charge um, is, not, um, is not a serious federal criminal charge. And as such, uh, General Vance does not risk losing his pension under the charge that has currently been laid. So there is a a lot on the line here uh, for Major General Fortin. And so uh, it is not surprising that uh, he is going to double down uh, on both those court cases. Uh, Christian, I cannot let you go without asking your, you your opinion on what is happening in Afghanistan, uh, specifically the charm offensive that we're now seeing from the Taliban. And can you give us a viewpoint of how can, how the Canadian military, the rank and file, would be viewing viewing this after uh, the costs that they have uh, endured. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's uh, it's heartbreaking for the members who have served there, um, the members who build personal relationships, um, the um, the comrades uh, in arms. Uh, that uh, uh, the Canadian lives that were lost, uh, the Canadian treasure that was spent. But look, I think Afghanistan is a very different place today than it was 20 years ago. Um, the majority of Afghans do not support the Taliban or the Taliban regime. At the same time, they also didn't support the regime in Kabul. And I think part of the reason why that regime melted away as quickly as it did um, is that, uh, that it clearly did not enjoy legitimacy with the Afghan population. And so I think the Taliban are realizing that uh, uh, there's an opportunity for them perhaps to govern the country in a more proficient uh, and effective way, uh, but that that will require them to change their behavior. Uh, they will have to forego the gratuitous violence and brutality that we saw. And really, they only have two options. Uh, they have to double down on that brutality in order to subvert the local population, or they can co-opt that local population. The question is, whether they can make good on the statements that they have made. I think those statements are as much for an external international audience as they are for an internal audience, because the Taliban are not one cohesive organization. They are effectively a loose federation of warlords. And some of these low warlords are pragmatists, and some of these warlords are ideological fundamentalists. And so it's a message to the ideological fundamentalists in terms of it's in everybody's interest to perhaps play uh, um, in a pro more pragmatist fashion. But make no mistake, the people who made these statements don't control all the warlords here. Uh, and so uh, whether and how those statements actually get translated and implemented uh, on the ground, uh, I think uh, those of us who watched the Taliban in the 1990s uh, are quite skeptical and quite fearful, uh, in particular for, for women and in particular for those uh, who have explicitly not supported the Taliban uh, over the past 20 years. Christian Leprecht with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My sincere pleasure. Thank you, Scott. 
heard the Arkells on the way in here. Uh, obviously, uh, recently at the Budweiser stage, lots of pictures on social media about that event. Uh, and, of course, signaling perhaps uh, the almost return to normal, maybe not quite like. Uh, let's bring in Eric Alper to talk about uh, the future of concerts and events moving forward as uh, we exit the summer and hopefully into a land of vaccination. Eric Alper, uh, music guru, is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, everybody's great. Everything's great, except for, you know, uh, not really out as much as I used to be. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So that being said, uh, we certainly saw, uh, our, and those that were lucky enough to be at the Arkell show at the Bud stage, uh, what is the situation now? What do the rules say? What can we do around concerts right now? I think Ontario, Hamilton, Canada is still in a little bit of a holding pattern. You know, we're still waiting to see if there is going to be um, a lifting of the hold on live shows until Labor Day on September the 6th. The Arkells was just a rare situation that they managed to squeak by um, because of the rules. And also, um, you know, the government here in Toronto, citywide and also provincial-wide, are definitely keeping their eye on what the audience was like. Um, because it was a Live Nation show, um, they required that, um, proof of vaccination, double shot. And if you didn't have proof that you were going to have rapid testing at the door and you still needed to wear your masks um, at all times, except when you were actively eating or drinking. I don't know if you saw the same photos that I did, but it just seemed like about, oh, I don't know, four people were wearing their masks throughout yeah. the entire show, yeah. um, which is really scary because it means that um, you know, we're all putting our little bit more of a faith in the vaccination. But it's also like I think once we get into a public place, we have to realize that the virus could spread. So I think for artists that are coming from America or the UK or elsewhere, I think you can still consider Canada to be closed for the next season. The next major concert on the schedule is probably Genesis back in, in uh, upcoming in November. Um We'll see what happens. Um, Scotiabank Arena, where the concert is supposed to be held in Toronto, have announced this morning that you will have to show double vaccination proof or do rapid testing. If not, you will be turned away at the door. So we'll see if that goes through and how they're going to do that with, you know, 15, 20,000 people all clamoring around the same place. Uh, we've just heard the other day that Ontario is pausing any more reopening. What does that do to this industry? I don't know if it does so much because a lot of these major live shows are booked off, paid for, and announced, you know, anywhere between a year and three months ahead of the actual date. A lot of Americans that are touring um, a lot of American bands like Kiss or the Foo Fighters, you know, those kind of stadium acts have already completely bypassed most of Canada on their tours. I've seen a number of shows being announced for Vancouver, B.C., but if you take a look at the state of their government, it seems like British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, they're open for business as much as you can be, uh, say, a Florida or California. They're not really taking, I think, the the... the the pretty heavy and major and rightfully so precautions that Ontario is. Um, so I don't think we're going to see a lot of major concert announcements for a while. I think it's too risky, although it would be 
really nice to think that there's some sort of conspiracy going on that these A-level artists are going to announce a show in Hamilton or Toronto and then keep the money in the bank for a year and a half. They don't want to do that. So, <laughs> you know, they have a date maybe on paper for Toronto or Hamilton, but they also have a number of other locations as secondary on paper, like, say, Buffalo, Niagara Falls, New York, uh, Syracuse, and maybe another night in New York City. So there's definitely options for artists to tour. I just don't think we're going to see any major shows coming up um, probably most likely until spring 2022. So uh, you talked about the Arkell show, and it was sort of a bit of a Petri dish, a bit of an experiment. How did they check? How did that protocol go with, with checking for vaccination? Um, you know, it's probably not the best method. I basically just went and called up a couple of friends to find out to see how it went, and I also saw online in the comment section on Twitter and Instagram, and, and for the most part, nobody actually had to show proof of vaccination. Nobody was checked. Um, it might have just been maybe every second person, every third person. I'm not 100% sure how Live Nation and AEG is deciding to actually do that, because um, again, like even checking bags for safety precautions and security reasons like we're all used to can take hours if you've got more than 10,000 people. So I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen. In looking at the U.S., um, events that seem to be super spreaders like Lollapalooza in Chicago that had over 300,000 people over the course of three and a half days, um, they're claiming that only 200 people are getting covid um, in the days past the two-week period where they could really start to figure out who actually got it specifically from that event. We're also seeing uh, high cases in, from the Sturgis Festival that was more rock-oriented. Um, and that's seemingly a super spreader event because so many people are coming and, and driving on their motorcycles from across America. With Lollapalooza, it just seemed like it was pretty much a, an urban center, Chicago, New York, um, um, uh, kind of tracking thing. But, you know, I, I, I think we're going to know for certain in the next 14 to 21 days, but it's going to be hard to track because that kind of lands right smack dab in the middle of students going to university, hmm. moving in, and students going back to school and parents and, and, and adults going back to work. Uh, let's bring in Diana Weeks, uh, news anchor here at CHML. She was at the Arkell show. Uh, Diana, your thoughts on going out for the first time in an event like this? Oh, hey, guys. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for bringing me in. Is yeah. she coughing a lot? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at uh, all. So hungover? Uh, no, no. I had a completely okay. dry evening. It was it was awesome. Um, I uh, I went to the Arkell show on Saturday at Budweiser stage with a girlfriend, and uh, it was weird. I I mean, it was a little emotional, you know, when they first came on stage and you saw. Mm. You know, everyone there, it was kind of like, whoa. And I posted some videos to my Instagram and got a lot of comments there because it was just, it, it looked like everything was back to normal. There was no spacing, nothing. Um, it was a mixed bag of people wearing their masks. No one was checking. I will say that. Um, as for vaccine checking, I wasn't checked. My friend wasn't checked. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but uh, about 50% of people, I would say, were wearing masks when they were up, you know, going to the concessions. But for mm -hmm. the most part... I was on the lawns and nobody had masks on. 
And does you, that, you, does that you, kind of paranoy you a little bit? Sorry, Scott. I, I like because that's my biggest fear, and I think that's a lot of people's fear who have been double vaccinated for a long time. We seemingly are doing the right thing. We were in isolation for all this time. Um, my my biggest fear is continuing to look around seemingly for the virus like I could see it. I don't think I wouldn't be able to enjoy the show knowing mm-hmm. that the people around me weren't checked either. Was that a concern for you? Uh, it was a little, like, just a little nerve-wracking. Like, I definitely wasn't up close and personal with anyone. I kind of just, like, kept our own little space. Um, it was kind of reassuring, though, when um, Max Kerman asked the crowd if ever who was double-vaxxed. Um, and he actually asked that. And, you know, a lot of people around us put up their hands. So I was like, OK, OK, we're getting somewhere here. At least we're vaxxed. They're vaxxed. Everyone's good. Um, but no, it was a little bit nerve wracking um, just being around people with no masks on, especially in such close proximity. I did feel better that I was outside. But, you know, I mean, it's just something we're not used to after being you know, locked inside for so long. But, Diana, you didn't see any evidence of anybody getting checked for a vaccine or anything. Oh, no, not, I, I didn't see that. No. Yeah. And, and for all intents and purposes, a full house. Yeah, packed. Yeah. Uh, what do you think this is going to happen moving forward with all this, Eric? Uh, and again, is it more of a gradual uh, uh, reopening, or do you think we're going to have a pause for a bit through the fall? I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the what the city government decide to do um, in conjunction with the local health officials, whether it's the Ontario or, or whether it's a specific city. Um, because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are listening to those people in power who are kind of directing where we could go and how many people could go. I think that if they start to see a lot of complaints from these events, whether they're concerts or sports arenas or, or the Blue Jays, um, if they start to see a rise in cases and they can track it into that, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if, if they are starting to put pressure to make sure that that those protocols are in place. It's one thing to announce that everybody has to show proof or do rapid testing. And it's another to actually go through with it. You know, I went to the baseball game a couple of weeks ago and I left within an inning and a half because nobody around me was wearing a mask, even when they weren't eating. Although that the reason why we actually went is because we were kind of under the impression that they were going to do testing on the spot or we were prepared to show proof. And if other people aren't, I don't know if I'm in the minority or not. But And I look, I, I love this industry. You guys know that. And I go see 100 shows a year. I'm not convinced I may go to a show for the next year and a half if, if those protocols aren't in place. Diana, obviously, uh, days after the Arkell show, are you still concerned? Are you sort of watching the calendar? Once I get to two weeks, I know I'm fine. Uh, are you concerned afterwards? No, I, I think I'm okay. I mean, I I can't speak for what everyone else was doing, but I think like I wasn't touching anyone. I was trying not to go that close to anyone. I was wearing my mask. You know, I kept to myself. I drove there and back, which is huge. I, maybe in the past I would have taken public transit, but this time mm. I, I drove. So, um, you know, I I felt safer in that sense. Uh, and, you know, I just sanitized, washed my hands, didn't really, you know, go near people too, too much. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't really control how many people are there and I, I guess walking all together in those masses were kind of a little jarring 
for sure. So when it was all over, did you feel good? Did you feel, wow, it was incredible, like you normally feel after a concert, or were you still, mm, well, yeah, it was, that was different? I, I did. I, I felt like it was a great show and everything. I mean, I, I my girlfriend and I purposely left before the last song. We looked at the set list yeah. only because we wanted to avoid going through, you know, uh, that really sh- narrow corridor with all those yeah. people. So, I mean, we did things that maybe other people weren't doing um, just to make it a little bit safer, possibly for ourselves. But no, it was great. It was great to be back. Got a little teary eyed when I when I saw them come on stage. Is this, is this for real? Is this really happening? Yeah. You know, Diana well, Weeks has I, been I with us. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Eric. Go ahead, I Eric. Think I'm, I think I'm going to ask Diane to come with me to the next show. She seems to kind of calm me right now with the phone. <laughs> I'm pretty and, zen. I'm and pretty she zen. Doesn't go into the mosh pit, so that's, that's a double. Hey, there was no moshing in our kills. <laughs> that's yeah. She yeah, carry around. You know, you need somebody to carry around. You know, your wet naps and your hand yeah, sand and everything exactly. like that. So yeah, exactly. you know, just keep just keep hosing <laughs> you down. Just keep spraying Eric down. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, uh, I guess these are the discussions we're going to have as we slowly move out of a global pandemic or whatever the new normal is. Diana Weeks has been with us, of course, news anchor with CHML. And Eric Alper, uh, music publicist and uh, music guru, about life at a concert uh, on the heels or while in a global pandemic. To the both of you, thanks so much for sharing the stories. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.